podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to the Inside Try Show with Helen Murray. This is the podcast that takes a deeper look at the sport with in-depth interviews and special episodes to keep you entertained and inspired while you're training. All right, let's begin. Hello and welcome to episode 48 of the Inside Try Show, sponsored by Long Range Fuel. I'm Helen Murray and this is the weekly podcast with awesome interviews from triathlon and beyond. Thank you so much for all the comments about the Dave Scott episode last week. It was so powerful to hear him talking openly and honestly about depression. Don't forget, if you do like what I do, then why not sign up to be a patron of the podcast? You can do that over at patreon.com forward slash inside try show. I really, really appreciate all of your support. If you are one of my Vino buddies or my training buddies, you should have had your exclusive episode. If you haven't, get in touch with me, let me know. So basically, I release two extra episodes twice a year for Vino buddies and training buddies with content that you don't get on here. You can only get it by signing up to be a Vino buddy or a training buddy at patreon.com forward slash inside try show. And my training buddies as well have recently had a little extra gift from Comfuel. So a massive Mahusive shout out straight away to show sponsors a long range fuel from resilientnutrition.com. They are amazingly delicious performance enhancing nut butters and they are getting a big shout out right now because I used it to fuel me around a recent race. Yes, it was an actual race. We got to put on a number. There were other people. We had a start line. We had a finish line. There were people that I could chase down the sun shone. It was amazing. It was a half marathon trail run up in the Lake District and oh, the feeling of just being able to go to a race, the portaloos, everything, everything like that, that I'd always take for granted. Um, It was just super, super special and it was hard work going up the hills. I've lost a lot of fitness, um, but it was yeah just brilliant to actually be able to race again. And I got about halfway through a 100 gram pouch during the trail half marathon. So if you are doing trail running or long rides and you need some decent energy, then long range fuel from Resilient Nutrition is the absolute bee's knees. No dodgy tummy delicious flavors i had the chocolate and hate dark chocolate and hazelnut one and it's just so good and it's almost like you look forward to it and you can easily shove the pouch in a pocket or a running pack so it's brilliant and then the other good news is that it comes in jars so if you're working from home or you need a snack before or after training and you want to avoid raiding the fridge and eating a load of rubbish or stopping off at the corner shop, then have a look into Long Range Fuel. You will get 10% off with the code INSIDETRY10, all lowercase, over at resilientnutrition.com or follow the link in this week's show notes at insidetryshow.com. Time for this week's interview. So this week, you're going to meet an amazing guy called Sam Perkins. Sam and I have a few things in common. We are a similar age. We both discovered a love for triathlon in our late 20s. Completely and utterly caught the bug. Uh, We've both done Ironman UK. 
we have both written a book for charity and we both do loads of stuff for charity. But the last 18 months have been anything but similar, to be honest, because in March 2019, Sam was diagnosed with motor neurone disease. It's utterly crap, isn't it? But you know what? If there was one person you would want to chat to about it, then it's Sam. Because even though he is now wheelchair bound, even though, as you will hear from the audio, he needs a machine to help him breathe, even though things are going to get worse for him, he has the best sense of humour. And he had me giggling throughout the interview. And if this raises just a little bit of awareness and a bit of fundraising for Sam and what he's doing, then bingo. Sam Perkins, welcome to the Inside Try Show. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, uh, Helen. Thank you for having me. No, it's really, I'm so pleased that we could make this happen. I'm really, really pleased. Thank Uh, you. Well, I hope so. I hope it's entertaining. Uh, No pressure. No, no, not at all. Not felt. Thanks. (laughs) Good. So... Sam, where should we start? I mean, do we start with you doing triathlon, you know, your kind of how triathlon has changed your life or um, or do we start with March 2019? Let's start with the triathlon stuff, because I think you I think you'd, you understand March 2019 and the journey I've been on much better if you put it into the context of triathlon. Yeah, so I was. I was quite a uh, a lazy twenty something, Jose. I think I um, I definitely enjoyed going to football and drinking at the pub, and not particularly being a very healthy person up until my mid to late twenties. And then I was sat, funny enough, in a pub with my uh, stepdad on Christmas Eve of two thousand and seven, I think, maybe two thousand and eight, um, and. I was discussing the fact that I fancied a challenge. I fancied something to do. And he started talking about triathlon, which I'd not really heard of uh, or didn't know that much about. And then discovered that you did all three things, one after the other, without any sort of rest. And rest was very important to me at that time. Um, And uh, I thought this sport sounded absolutely insane. And of course, I probably had one one beer too many and just and committed to giving it a go uh we had a tri club that was just in the next village and um yeah so 18 and a half stone pitched up at tri club in the new year went for a swim uh and everyone i think immediately like everyone at the club was so welcoming and so uh genuine because you i suppose a kind of thought it might get ridiculed a little bit for being kind of a a drinking, smoking, fat, unhealthy lump. And, you know, all these people are super fit athletes and mega competitive and they're just, I suppose, a bit wary from that point of view, but didn't find that at all. Just found, like, 100% of them were just encouragement and sort of good on you for giving it a go. And I think everybody... You know, everybody listening who's part of that triathlon community understands that that's what that's that's who we are. We're not um, we're not judgy, elitist. Um, I mean, ninety percent of us are only there to challenge ourselves anyway. There's very few of us are actually trying to get on the podium. I certainly never was. 
Yeah. For you, it was all about actually, I want a bit of a challenge and I want to be. Did you, did you think at that point, I want to be a bit fitter, a bit healthier? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think I'd, you know, I'd kind of gone, you know, I've spent, I've spent a long time kind of living this unhealthy lifestyle and it's not really doing me any favours, you know, I'm getting sweaty as I walk up a flight of stairs kind of thing. So part of it was definitely the health element. Um, but, Part of it was the challenge. And so I, I signed up to a sprint triathlon um, in East Leap, which is my local village. And uh, completed that about, I think it was end of March, so three and a bit months after I'd started doing some exercise. Um, but yeah. And how did that feel? Oh, it was amazing. Absolutely loved it. I um, The sense of, achievement coming across the line uh i think i was third to last but i didn't care because it was just can i do it and i, and I went ahead and did uh, and for i think from that very second i was just absolutely hooked it was just that that purpose of um achievement and i did it i did the same event six months later and did it about 26 minutes quicker i think <laughs> mad isn't it and what did your immediate family what did they say when you crossed that line that first time so the people who'd been in the pub with you um they were just a bit flabbergasted really I think you know the only the only thing I'd shown any sort of determination towards was getting somebody else to buy the next round I think so uh, yeah it was they were just it was just immense pride i think i particularly remember my my mum and dad because i guess they you know in hindsight they were probably a bit worried about me and i wasn't living the healthiest lifestyle and for me to kind of decide to do that and what i realize now is it's not so much about the event it's the three months of hard work that enables you to do the event people aren't just impressed by the accomplishment they're in they're kind of impressed and proud of all the graft that you put in you know going out for a run on a rainy Tuesday night after work just because you want to do well in two months time that's that's the bit that really takes the motivation so then from the second time that you did that exact same triathlon the same sprint 26 minutes faster I take it by that point you had the bug Oh yeah, 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 definitely. That was that was it. It was um, which piece of carbon fiber can make me go a little bit quicker? Uh, do I need to shave my legs to be more aero? It was, it was all, no, never. No. <laughs> I, I always thought uh, it could it could uh, I could always claim those seconds back in my mind. Yeah, because um, they weren't really mine to, to begin with. Um, and I couldn't afford the uh, the best bit of, best bit of carbon fibre anyway. So, yeah. And so, was it then being in that club environment? Kind of typical story. You do your first one. You think, right, what's next? You do maybe an Olympic, and then you kind of build up over the distances. Would, yeah. that, would that be a fair thing? Yeah, I built up year on year. So I think the first two years, I maybe just did sprints and just tried to get to get better. Um, and then, yeah, started, did an Olympic and I thought, let's have a go at a half Ironman and actually found out that 
actually I really enjoy the longer stuff because like don't really feel like you have to rush in transition because you know what's an extra 10 seconds when I'm about to run a half marathon kind of thing and uh, yeah and then built up to um, 2014 I did uh, Ironman Bolton as my uh, as my first Ironman and then I also completed uh, the full outlaw in 2016 which was about an hour and 20 minutes faster than Bolton so some improvement over, the, over those couple of years although outlaw is a lot flatter um, ah, no nah, it's still it's still it's still faster it's still faster I'm still taking it yeah absolutely yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and did it like did it change your your whole life effectively absolutely I mean it's really it's kind of cheesy to say it but triathlon definitely changed my life in terms of giving me confidence about being able to do what I set out to do and giving me a, a state of physical fitness that it's amazing if you know if people are listening and they've always been fit it is amazing how much better you feel than being a uh, an overweight heavy drinker smoker you trust me you are you feel a lot better you enjoy life a lot more they may they may think that they do but they don't <laughs> did you have then race plans for 2019 had you in your head had you got had you got stuff that you wanted to do in 2019 not 2019 i had plans for 2018 that were that were scuppered kind of found myself incapable yeah and- one of a better word and it, like what what happened so i was starting to starting to train and i was going out for runs and i'm i'm quite a big guy anyway so you know my my legs always felt a little bit heavy when i was running but they felt particularly uh leaden and i was i just felt like i i wasn't building fitness the way i normally would even though I was losing weight the way I normally would. Uh, and Sam, uh, would this have been like maybe April, May 2018? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So from March, I remember I went on a skiing holiday in February and I came back and I was like, right, I hit the training now properly. And I started to do it and I was just like, feel wrong. So March, April, May, and I was I was getting out on the bike Um and it's a really weird thing to try and describe, but I um, I was out on the bike and my legs worked reasonably well, but my lungs didn't. So I was kind of riding along and I was like, I'm so out of breath, but my legs aren't tired enough for me to be this out of breath. Because, you know, you kind of get that sense of balance between the two, really. Um and it was it was such a weird feeling, and then uh, I think I'd then changed job, and just training hadn't gone how I'd wanted it to. So I ended up not doing Outlaw Holcomb, and uh, then late August, early September, I had a crash on my bike, um, smashed my hand up a bit, which is quite unpleasant, um, and. Over the months that followed that, the problems with my chest became worse. 
So I was um, having really vivid dreams. Um, I was getting short of breath whenever I laid down horizontally. So I would, I would lay down flat and my, I'd kind of have to pant for 30 seconds to get my breath, which felt a bit weird. I didn't really understand it. Um, but I'd had You're to like this it. fit, you're this healthy athlete, triathlete. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, what's, what was happening to my body kind of thing? I'd, I'd, I had surgery on my hand following the bike crash. And I remember just being really tired all the time, really lethargic, like my legs felt heavy. And, uh, you know, a lot of people saying to me, well, you you know, you've had surgery, your body's doing a lot of repair work that takes up a lot of energy. And I sort of thought, okay. But then it got to late that year. And I was, I remember going to the doctor with this kind of list of things that was concerning me that didn't really make any sense. Um, she couldn't really figure it out either. So she sent me for a, a neurology referral. Um, but it was by that point that I really started to struggle to sleep. So it was probably late November, early December, when I, I wouldn't sleep for more than half an hour at a time without waking up. And so, yeah, can you describe what that, like, what that was like then, that half an hour kind of period or when you would wake up really confusing and quite upsetting because I mean I haven't got children my sisters have and I see them when they don't sleep a lot and people get kind of a little bit delirious and a little and exhausted and I was exactly the same but nothing there was nothing physically waking me up so there was no screaming baby telling me how to get up it's just that my my body was refusing to sleep so I would go to sleep half an hour later back wake up and very vivid dreams in between and eventually I just I think I kind of early Jan I just kind of gave up I thought what's the point and I I was off work by this time because I was too exhausted to work and it's not um I wouldn't fall asleep at my desk. It was almost it was more like losing consciousness, I think. I would just kind of drift off. And I'd be talking to members of my family and my eyes would roll back because I was just so exhausted. But then, of course, sleep wouldn't last. So it was just... Um, do you know, the, the word that sums it up is confusing. I just didn't, didn't understand what was happening to my body at all. End of Feb. 2019 I got up and I said to my wife Emma um, I'm going to I wasn't driving because uh, I'd, I'd handed my keys to my sister and said I don't think I'm safe to drive um, and I was planning on Emma was going to work but I said I'm going to get the bus and I'm going to go see my mum and she just looked at me and she went you're not you're going to hospital I was like no no I'm alright got a bit of a cough and I'm you know, I'm still knackered, but I'm okay. No, you're going to hospital. So I got to hospital. After I'd seen the nurse and kind of told her the story, she got me admitted through to a bed pretty quickly. And uh, I had a resting heart rate while I was lying down. Of, I think it was 136. My resting heart rate was usually about 55. Wow. My blood oxygen was 74%, and it, it should be... 
uh, anybody that healthy would be 98, 99, pretty much all the time. They pretty quickly kind of got me hooked up to stuff and got me oxygen and all the rest of it. Um, but unfortunately, they didn't know about the underlying illness at that time. So they knew I had pneumonia, but they didn't know kind of what had caused it or the fact that I, my body can't deal with it in the same way as somebody else's. And the reason for that is because I'm unable to cough myself. So I'm unable to clear my own secretions in my lungs. And so two days later, I lost consciousness as a result of um, basically choking on my secretions and woke up the next day in critical care in City Hospital in Nottingham. And I think that was the first time I, I, I woke up and I went, oh, this is quite serious. Before, before that, had you just before, been thinking? Like, this is weird. I don't, I don't really like, there's not, you know, it was kind of that male invincibility thing of yeah there's lots of things wrong with me that are really worrying but I'll be all right I'm all right and it's me and I'll be all right I, nobody you know ever gets anything serious so it's all right it's fine and what was going through your head then when you woke up in intensive care in critical care honestly I was still in that stage of like what's what's going like what's wrong with me I can't. It can't be that serious because it's me. I'll be all right. And it, but then kind of a nagging little voice in the back of your head going, "You are really ill, and this is really, you know, this is worrying." You know, Emma. Emma tells this story about me in uh, critical care that when she when she arrived, it was really quite quite worrying. I was kind of slumped on the bed, sort of a. Uh, I wasn't really there. I wasn't I hadn't quite fully regained consciousness, and I was um, kind of crumpled up. And I, I do, I remember her talking to me and telling me that she loved me and saying that I'd be all right and I just needed to relax because I was struggling against the ventilator that I'd been given because it was a massively uncomfortable thing. And um, she'd asked my mum and dad and sisters to come along and see me. Because, I mean, the doctors were saying, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. If you're in critical care, it's, it's serious stuff. Um, and Emma had been quite shocked by what she'd seen when she'd come into critical care. Um, so she went to the entrance of, of the ward and met my mum and dad just to kind of warn them and prepare them for what they were about to see. And, uh, you know, I've been pretty non-responsive and all the rest of it and when she when she walked them through to where I was I was sitting up in bed having a cup of tea chatting to the nurse so uh, she was absolutely livid with me because she'd you know, given them this whole spiel about how sick I was and then she walked back around the corner and I was like hey you're right yeah I'm feeling a lot better now actually thanks yeah fine so uh, yeah I think I stitched her up a bit there <laughs> Um, but um, it was it was later that day that I uh, I was visited by the neurological consultant and I'd had some tests done while all this was going on things like a really lovely one where they uh, stick stick needles into all of your muscles and conduct electricity through them yeah they do it to your tongue as well it lasts about an hour 
So they're basically checking how well your muscles conduct signals they get from your nerves. Did, did you um, know at the time, Sam, what they were what they were doing or what they were testing for and stuff? Yeah, I mean, I, I knew what they were looking for, and I knew that um, one of the tests. So that's 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 one way of testing it. The other way is, oh, I'm going to get this wrong now. Um, they look at whether nerve signals are sent and received, and um, I knew that that had showed that some signals weren't being received at the other end of a nerve, something along those lines. Probably, you'll probably get letters telling you I'm scientifically incorrect now. But, uh, we, 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 don't, we, don't, we, don't get, we don't get letters here, don't worry about it. <laughs> and if, 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 people, if there are, it's only for me, so don't worry about that. <laughs> um, and I knew that that had shown that there was an issue so I knew that something was wrong, but I had been told by the neurological consultant I'd seen previously that there were lots of potential reasons for that. Many of them were treatable. But unfortunately, with, with motor neuron disease, one of the key things they use to diagnose you is time. So if you've got another condition, you might develop it and it just stays a bit as it is. But MND kind of starts and then doesn't stop. It just progresses on so yeah it was the day that I'd sat up in critical care and had a cup of tea the neurological consultant came to see me and he uh, he said um, would you like your parents to hear the next bit and it, I was like well that's a really difficult question to answer when I don't know what the next bit is yeah um, but it, the way he kind of said it was like you what I'm about to tell you you kind of need your nearest and dearest with you yeah. So Emma, mum and dad uh, sat with me. He said, you know, I'm very, I'm very sorry, but you, you have motor neuron disease. Which was surreal, to be honest. I expected him. I think what felt like a good 30 seconds expected him to go, no, you haven't really. I'm only kidding. But of course, doctors don't really do that, do they, with news like that? Yeah, maybe maybe not. No, no. Uh, but I think because I had um, I'd read up a lot about it because I knew it was I knew it was what they were searching for, or like the worst case scenario was what of what was being investigated, really. <laughs> but it's still the last thing you expect. In you know, I was thirty-seven. I was pretty fit, pretty healthy. I looked after myself. And not only have you got a really serious diagnosis, but there's no treatment options. There's no cure. And 50% of people who are diagnosed pass away within two years, which for me would give me another five months. And to kind of be confronted with that information when you're you know, a few hours ago, I'd been sitting there going, I'll be all right. I'm all right. And then it's like somebody hitting you in, with a sledgehammer that just says, no, you're not. And you're not going to be. Yeah, really, really difficult. I mean, that's underplaying it, I think. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, where where do you even sort of start to gather your thoughts on that? Do you know what? It ridiculously quickly, actually. I mean, 
obviously breaking the news to other people, talking about it, getting upset. There's there's emotion in the immediate aftermath of this is really, really rubbish. And I wish things were different. But I would say within 48 hours, I was kind of sitting going to myself, well, like the same example of this is like a run that, you know, work kept you late for. You you didn't get this. I couldn't blame myself. I think if I'd have carried on smoking and got lung cancer when I was 40, my mindset would have been completely different because I'd have thought this was your fault. Like that you, every time you bought a box, it told you what would happen. Um, But this, it was completely out of my hands. It was just a really, really bad, I'm trying not to swear, thing to happen. Um, And I very quickly went, well, I can't, you know, I could spend the time that I've got being miserable that it's happened and ruined my bad luck. Or I can spend it getting the most out of every day making a difference, focusing on what I can do and not what I can't and just just try try and smile and laugh every day because it's the things that make me smile and laugh are still still in the world and they're still out there. So focus on them and not the life that I could have had that I've lost I've lost. I can tell you're a very funny guy, so <laughs> We, do, we must just have a similar sense of humour. I can introduce you to many people who can tell you how unfunny I am. I can hear so that there is definitely a sense of humour there. And, yeah, even just the way that you are talking, it is with a... There is, a, there is the humour there, and that's... I mean, that's incredibly powerful to be able to carry on having that and actually, yeah... Um, it's always been part of who I am. I um, what I think one of the ways that I deal with what happens to me is through laughing about it. I remember um, I'd been back from a hospital about a month and I was in the living room at our old house and I'd gone to, uh, to pick something up off the floor that had dropped down, so I'd like, gone to my knees, gone to pick it up. And then as after I'd done it, I realised I couldn't, uh, actually physically couldn't get myself back on the sofa. So I was trapped basically on the floor of our living room on my hands and knees. And I was just in hysterics. I just thought it was absolutely hilarious. Because it was like, why did you bend down and get this? You know you can't stand up. And yeah, it was, uh, I had to, you know, I, you can get upset by that or you can... You can just see the humour in it. And I, don't get me wrong, there are, you know, there are moments. You know, I had I had a pretty bad fall at a train station quite early on. I kind of split the back of my head open. And that wasn't funny. That was that was really upsetting. Um, and, you know, there are, there are private moments with family and a wife. And when you sort of go, do you know what, you have to allow yourself to say, this disease is horrible and it's horrible that I've got it, that it's okay to be miserable about it. But not all the time. Not all the time. 
what like yours we haven't I haven't described yet obviously this is um this is audio I mean you and I can see each other now but actually for people listening it is just the the audio so I can see you are hooked up to a a ventilator to help you breathe I mean you can describe it way better than me but effectively you've got a tube which is hooked up to that machine yeah so if anybody's listening and think I've got a really bad cold I haven't um, no. I, I've got um, I've got two rubber. They're called nasal pillows. Which I think is a nice nice way of describing them. And they're, they're, I bet it's not like a pillow up your nose. <laughs> no, well, compared to some of the other options, it is. Um, basically, I have a strap around my head that means that they're pulled into my nostrils all the time, and then a machine forces air in. Because I am unable to uh, draw air in through the use of my diaphragm and unable to cough through the use of my diaphragm. And that was what was causing all of the symptoms I was describing earlier, back to the shortness of breath when lying down and the vivid dreams and the, the waking up every half an hour. Because what happens is your body accepts sleep because you're so tired, uh, but then because you're not breathing properly, your body then says, hang on a minute, we're not getting enough oxygen, I need to wake up, because something's obviously wrong with my environment or where I am, that means that, you know, if I stay like this, I'm going to suffocate, basically. So I was given this ventilator when I was first admitted onto the respiratory ward after I'd been in, in intensive care, and it is one of the top 20 moments of my life. They put it on my face, and I was asleep within about 45 seconds. They were still trying to explain to me how it worked, and I just fell asleep. Because it was the first time in about four months that I'd breathed properly. And at first, I needed it to sleep. Over time, obviously, the condition is degenerative, so I kind of needed it more and more. Now I wear this like 23 and a half hours a day. So... It feel it now feels completely natural. I kind of have to judge my speech on when I'm about to be given a breath. Sometimes I can talk through it, but then I'll run out of air. Um, you're laughing because you can see me doing all this as I'm talking to you, can't you? Uh, um, but yeah, you just I just get completely used to it. I mean, I eat with it on, I drink with it on, I have my teeth brushed for me with it on. But whereas breathing was one of the first things for me, that's really unusual with MND. It's about, okay. I reckon about 2% of cases present with breath issues first. So Sam, in terms of um, your diagnosis and, you know, yes, you've got the breathing equipment and things, but where are you at now? Like how quickly have things degenerated? I've had quite a uh, rapid physical decline. So I was diagnosed 18 months ago from being, you know, a, a strong, physically capable person. Um, I'm now, um, I can't stand independently, can't walk. My hands are pretty much immovable, like in terms of any finger flexion or anything like that. I can. I've got a bit of strength left in my shoulders. I don't know why I'm demonstrating it for you because the listeners can't see me. I've got a little bit of core strength left, 
so I could still hold myself seated upright, um, kind of move my hips a little bit, which is ironic because I, my core strength throughout my entire life has been horrendous. I think, um, yes, it's been rapid and it's been difficult. Emma and I have taken a really good approach in that we've always tried to future-proof everything around. So it might be, I had a wheelchair while I was still walking about fine for the time when I needed it. And we, we, we always take the same approach. But I can't deny that these things either might or could or will happen. I still count myself quite lucky and I'm able to speak, I'm able to swallow, which are things that can quite often happen first. Um, and I think, you know, having lost the ability to speak by the time you find out you've got this and it's not coming back would be really emotionally difficult um, because it's it's the challenge that lays ahead for me that I don't really look forward to you've probably noticed that I, I like chatting yeah uh, and so I you know I like talking to people I like socializing but in the interests of future proofing I've already uh what, done what they call voice banking yeah so, can you describe a bit more about what that is so it's sat in front of the very same computer I'm sat in front of now and over the course of I don't know how many hours I did it for that I record I've recorded roughly 1800 phrases so those phrases try and capture as many of the ways in which the human voice can kind of transition between words and syllables etc so that as and when the time comes when my voice has to be recreated by a machine it actually uses the recordings of my physical voice rather than the kind of traditional Steve talking kind of robot voice it'll actually sound like me which That's I think is amazing yeah it's, it's it's an incredible thing really and one that seemed like I don't know whether I could be bothered when it first kind of cropped up but now I'm really glad that it's done and it's kind of in the bank and, and ready to be used that, that is pretty phenomenal isn't it so that must have kept you really busy, Sam. And yeah. then the small matter of setting up a charity as well. The, yeah. Again, you, you're not just like doing nothing, are you? <laughs> no, I, I don't. Um, I don't wallow about much. I'm very fortunate, really. I, I have to kind of pay tribute to my wife Emma and the rest of my family and support group because. One of, I mean, one of my care, the head of my care nursing team said to me that the people who, the people who cope best with this diagnosis are the people who have the best support groups around them. I mean, without Emma, the charity wouldn't exist. I have to be honest. I, yes, I wanted it to happen, but she's she's done so much of the legwork, and I really have to pay tribute to her. And I've got a team of sort of seven trustees on the board, and we all make stuff happen. I basically just have to speak to my phone, tell it to send a WhatsApp to someone to tell them to do something. So, and then I have to do like fun things like doing uh, talking to you and trying to get the message out there. So, it's from my point of view, it's all it's all enjoyable stuff. I haven't had to fill any of the forms, and 
oh, win. <laughs> <laughs> so it's called Stand Against Motor Neurone Disease, isn't it? Or SAM for short, which I like the play on words there. And you've like you've raised loads of money already, and you recently had a whole bunch of people, including you, doing spin as well, didn't you? A, a big spin. Yeah. yeah. So well, we've done we've done loads of this year. So in a year that's been really hard for charities, and we look we registered last December, so we've been going about ten months. If we've already raised just over thirty five grand. So we've done things like spin against MND was um, one of my uncle's company. Well, my uncle's company that he works for, they had planned to do a, I think they were going to do the Three Peaks Challenge this year. But obviously, COVID kiboshed that. And so they came up with uh, cycling virtually from Land's End to John O'Groats and back again. About 10 of them. And I joined in on my like little static pedals. I didn't contribute a lot, but I like to think it made the difference. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we've done, we've got a children's book. So we've got a book called uh, Lily and Sam, which was written and illustrated by my brother-in-law. Um, and that uh, is for sale on Amazon. That's actually being used by quite a few teachers to teach kids about inclusion and acceptance and stuff. Oh, wow. And so did you did you write it then? I came up with the kind of concept for the story. My brother-in-law illustrated it and my sister did most of the words. Um, And then we self-published it through Amazon. It's just about um, the friendship between myself and Lily, which is a real friendship. And she doesn't, you know, when I got diagnosed, she was two, I think. Yeah, two nearly. And it's your niece, isn't it? Yeah. So she doesn't, really know any difference to be honest she I think she does see the decline sometimes but it's about that friendship when we go to the park and stuff on the park's broken and I kind of come up with the ideas of how to fix stuff and then other people help but I'm still so I'm still actively participating and contributing and I'm a that key member of the story and it's gone down really well it's a lovely little book yeah that is brilliant that's so cool and then you've the i want to say about the east leak tri club as well or the east leak triathlon so uh, what was that and then what is happening in march that maybe others can get involved in so uh east leak tri was the first triathlon i ever did uh it's a pool-based sprint triathlon and we are trying to encourage first timers to do it and raise money for the charity as a result so it's held twice a year it's held in march and september march has got cancelled but we were lucky enough to actually be able to complete september's and i managed to i managed to inspire uh, 13 13 newbies to give it a go um and between them they raised just over five and a half thousand pounds which was awesome uh, and it was great to get down there and support and stuff. And we want to encourage, we'd like to do that kind of every six months. It's the village where I live. It's the first one I ever did. If you've never given it a go, get involved. I'll even do you a training plan if you like. See, you're, spread, you're, spreading, you're spreading the triathlon love sound. Yeah, uh, I am, you see. Yeah. 
And was there hope to do a Team Hoyt kind of thing? Yes. So that is still still in the plan. Okay. Um, I still intend to get Toad pushed and pushed round Holcomb Half next year. So I've got many a volunteer signed up because I don't think I'm going to be the easiest person to pedal around 56 miles. But I did think to myself, I'm probably going to enjoy it more than any other try I've ever done because it's like no effort. I don't even have to breathe. That even that gets done for me. <laughs> I just I'll just sit there with my machine on watching the countryside. <laughs> And for those who, who might not be aware, I mean, a lot of people will be, but for those that don't, Team Hoyt, um, it's an American, it's, it's father and son, isn't it? It is, yeah. Yeah. So he tows him in a boat. And then when the boat's finished, when the swim's finished, he, he picks him up, puts him on a specially adapted bike, rides him around the course and uh, picks him up, puts him on a wheelchair and then pushes him around the room. Uh, I, I have not, asked one single person to do it all on their own my my team's going to be as a team so they're going to kind of going to go out in a group of three of us on the bike so they can rotate between who's pushing me and then uh, the run course is is laps so I've got people to do one lap each and I've asked people who were kind of uh, inspired me or were influential to me in the in my triathlon journey to help me do that so, like, my, my stepdad is one of them, and he was the guy I was sat in the pub talking to. And uh, I've asked him to do part of the part of the bike leg. And then there's uh, there's a guy called Dave Orr, and who is one of the guys who's finished every single Outlaw event. Although he's recently just had to miss Outlaw X, because one of his uh, one of his probably shielding from COVID, so he decided not to. But that he was he was one of the guys at the club who sort of made me believe that I could go further like I could do more than an Olympic and then once I've done a half I could do that again you could do it now if you wanted I'm like well I don't know about that Dave but but yeah so those people to kind of take me around that course so I think I think it'll be quite emotional when I cross the line I would imagine that'd be so special wouldn't it yeah special wow and then Someone like Doddy Weir, um, former Scottish rugby player, um, yeah. was diagnosed with motor neuron disease in 2017, I think. Like, I don't know, is it something that have has his charity supported you in any way? Are you, uh, like, inspired at all by him or, or anything like that? Is Has it made any difference at all to to you? Has it Has his charity supported me in any way? Yes. I um I have a wash and dry toilet, which uh, does what it says on the tin. It means that somebody else doesn't have to do it for you. And for that, I got a grant from the MND Association, and that particular grant was partially supported by Doddy's Foundation. I think um, more widely what it does for the disease is um, one of the things that really need to do is to raise awareness so I mean you kind of go back to the most famous person who's who's ever had this disease is Stephen Hawking and I think 
it could be argued that that's not actually been a great thing for the disease itself uh, because he lived for a long, long time. He's the longest ever surviving person with this disease and 50% of people who get it are dead within two years of diagnosis. So we really have a lot of work to do in terms of kind of banging on the table and shouting about how devastating and how deadly this disease is and the fact that the the main charity which pays for research in the UK into this disease raises about 18 million pounds a year and when you put that into the context of other healthcare charities yes you know I, I can't deny that those other diseases are awful devastating deadly and they affect a lot more people but the the funding they receive is disproportionate to the effect I think that it has on the individuals and I am one of 5,000 people in this country at the moment who are currently going through this there are six new diagnoses every day which means there are six deaths every day and everybody's chance of developing this is one in 300 so I go watch Nottingham Forest play football and on the occasions we've managed to sell the stadium out there's 30,000 of us and I sit and I look at those 30,000 people and I think 100 of us are going to get this and I think that the money that's directed towards finding treatments finding a cure needs to be more in order to help those people and you know I'm as guilty as anyone I wasn't Bagging the table and raising money until I was diagnosed, but now that I am and the order of my disease means I've still got a voice, I'm going to use it as much as I can to do what Doddy's doing and raise awareness. So those kind of celebrity sufferers, for want of a better phrase, um, are really important to the to the to helping find cures, basically. And it, I, I don't think it's incurable. I just think we haven't found it yet. There will come a day when somebody goes and gets diagnosed and gets a prescription and it's done. Wouldn't that be amazing? It would be absolutely amazing, yeah. It would be. And I, I believe it's possible, so that's what we're striving for. And Sam, obviously at the moment you can't do long-term planning. Um, what tips would or what tip would you have for people or wise words of wisdom um just about mindset and kind of living in the moment again as cheesy as that sounds no no it's 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 important uh tips um well one that is i think i've probably mentioned already today and is completely transferable between triathlon and illness is control the controllables um and kind of do everything in your power to disregard the uncontrollables. So if something goes wrong that is, is completely out of your control, don't let it distract you in any way. Just think about how you can respond to it through something you've got control over and do that. And I think the other one that I wasn't particularly good at before I got ill is uh, be nice to yourself. So the number of times you will hear somebody uh, 
castigate themselves for something they've done and you think or even say to that person, you know, would you speak to your friend that way if they'd just done the same thing or would you be more forgiving and more understanding? Just try and apply a little bit of that to yourself. And as unnatural as it is, try not to try not to focus on the negative, try and try and focus on on the good stuff that's around you and the stuff you enjoy. What a remarkable chap. What a remarkable guy. And as ever, I have linked to Sam's book and his fundraising pages in the show notes over at insidetryshow.com. So go and check them out. And while you're there, click on insidetryshow.com forward slash listen and subscribe to this podcast. It only takes two seconds, but then you'll be able to get the episodes as soon as they are released. So insidetryshow.com forward slash listen. And then from there, you can subscribe. Thanks for listening to the Inside Try Show. If you want to get in touch or get a little bit more information on anything, then reach out to Helen on Instagram or Twitter at Inside Try Show. A few shout outs to do this week. Rob, congratulations for your recent London Marathon fundraising as well. David, thank you so much for your message that you sent me. You tell me that you think you mixed things up a little bit. And you did a 1.1 mile loop on the hour every hour for 24 hours in the peeing rain. Fueled by crisps, I think, from about the 18 mile mark. Good on you. Good on you. And it is about mixing things up a little bit, isn't it? And then I have had as well a some try sharing wisdom, which I absolutely love from Catherine. Hi Helen, my name's Catherine Hilton, I'm from East Devon and I've been dabbling with Ironman and middle distance triathlon for the last 15 years. My piece of try sharing wisdom is about the off season. So I like many haven't raced at all this year and it would be easy to think that I didn't need an off season and to push on with structured training um, with goals and aspirations for next year but wrong. For me, the next few weeks and months are about maxing out on opportunities to do lots of fun stuff and extracurricular sport. So for example, in the last couple of weeks, I've been out and about enjoying the sunshine. I've been exploring trails on my gravel bike and mountain bike. I've been paddleboarding, kayaking. I've enrolled on an orienteering skills course. I've done more yoga. Um, And I'm a massive Exeter Chiefs rugby fan, so I've actually spent a lot of time with my feet up watching rugby on TV because we can't get to the the live stadiums. So yes, I still swim, bike and run, but when I go out, I either leave my garment at home or stick it on recreation mode and just enjoy being out there. That is what I call quality advice. And it is so, so important, isn't it? Because this year is just, it's just been, you can't really get your head around this year, to be honest, can you? Um, But we still do need to have a break and things like that. And that is the one thing that I have definitely learned from this year, even from a work perspective, I guess. Um, I, I didn't take any leave early on enough I don't think I can even speak English basically I needed to take some leave before I did um and my brain was absolutely frazzled and I yeah I felt shattered really really tired just mentally probably physically too so yeah 
it's good to take a break. It is good to take a break. I'm still doing yoga. I've been doing bits of walking too. And this week I'm going to be getting back to doing a little bit more swim coaching again, which is kind of scary. And I'm also back on the Zoom spin for the Tri Club. And get this, thanks to Reverend Kate Botley, who we had on the podcast earlier this year. She's very, very funny. Go and check it out if you haven't before very very funny if you like swimming you like open water swimming go and check it out anyway thanks to her thanks to anita and nelly and ellie and anyone else who thought it'd be fun to you know talk me into these things uh, i have signed up for a polar swim now if you've been a long time listener or if you know me quite well you will know that i really hate the cold and i really struggle with hands and i just can't feel them but i have signed up for this damn swim because I'm going to try to have a bit of a mindset shift towards winter and apparently all these lovely ladies have told me I need to embrace cold water swimming. I am absolutely going in in my wetsuit. In fact if I even get in it's going to be a miracle and I will need a lot of hot water bottle action I think after it. I'll keep you posted. I'll probably put some photos up so you'll be able to see a blue smurf. That'll be me. Anyway, thank you very much to 33fuel.com who make delicious, yummy, natural energy bars and protein bars and chia seed gels and award-winning ultimate daily greens. The bars are a bit like a cross between panettone and Christmas cake. I'm a big, big fan. And the protein bar totally got me back down the motorway before a proper roast dinner after the trail race recently. So check them out for yourself at 33fuel.com and don't forget to use the code INSIDETRY33 for a discount at checkout. This week's show has been sponsored by Long Range Fuel, who make phenomenally tasty performance-enhancing nut butters. You will get 10% off with the code INSIDETRY10, all lowercase, over at resilientnutrition.com or follow the link in the show notes at insidetryshow.com. And you are still making the most of the whopping 20% discount from comfuel.co.uk. So if pick and mix is more your thing and you want different energy products, maybe a sweat test, you want some new water bottles, then pop over to comfuel.co.uk. You can get 20% off everything with the code INSIDETRY. So think that is pretty much the end of this podcast don't forget head over to insidetrishow.com forward slash listen and subscribe to the show that'd be amazing but until next week look after yourself look after those around you thank you for listening and we'll speak again then Podcast Network.